This podcast may not be suitable for young listeners. We discuss very emotional topics and at times use grown-up language. Each episode could contain content that may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to The Secret in My DNA. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Michelle Perret. The Secret in My DNA is a podcast where NPEs and MPEs can share their stories. NPE is an acronym for Not Parent Expected or Non-Paternal Event. MPE means Misattributed Parental Event. This means that we've discovered that at least one assumed parent is not our biological parent. In 2016, I found out I was an NPE after taking an Ancestry DNA test, and suddenly life as I knew it was no longer the same. On this podcast, we share the experience of making our DNA discovery and what the journey has been like since. Most people cannot empathize or understand unless they've lived it. I find the podcast platform to be a wonderful way for us to come together as a supportive community in which we can heal from the trauma and take back our narrative by sharing our stories with the hope that this will help others to cope with their new life-altering truth. Welcome to episode nine, The Rebirth Day. My guest today is Cassandra. Hi, Cassandra. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful, and I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Cassandra, I did not realize when I scheduled this recording with you that it just so happens that today is the four-year anniversary of your DNA discovery. It is. I am four years old. I'm pretty well-spoken for a four-year-old, I think, generally speaking. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand that you like to call it your rebirth day. I do. Yes, I do. After after seeing how much this day has impacted uh, people in our community, it really has felt like another another day that you came into existence. I would have to agree with that. I really do. Now, um, a little while ago, I happened to be um, thumbing through my Facebook news feed And I noticed that um, you had posted something. That's how I realized that it was your four-year anniversary. I didn't know prior to that. Um, And you had written something today that I thought was very moving, very profound. And I was wondering if before we start with the whole question and answer interview and before you start telling your story if you would read to the listeners what you wrote today on Facebook. I absolutely will. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, let's go for it. (laughs) Today, I am four years old. Four years ago this morning, at nearly this exact time that I'm writing, the bomb dropped and one of the most significant days of my life was underway. Worst most impactful, most life-changing, the most horrible and best thing to ever happen to me, the truth. A day, though its impact has touched so many people, that is and should only revolve around me, my own existence, my own body, and my own identity. I have become a different person. I will never be who I was prior to September 26th. 2017. There are many people, friends, family, acquaintances, who were unwilling or unable to join me in that journey. I no longer blame myself for that. It was clear that who I was and what I was experiencing made them uncomfortable. They could not grow. Anyone who knew me before knew another me. They know what has happened to me and they know I have not and won't come back to the before. Yet those who took a chance, believed in me, tagged along and boosted me, I think they see that I really am the same silly person I always was and always will be. And for that, I will always love and hold you all in gratitude. 
those who have only known me in the last four years, you know, a newer version of me, one who is no longer so afraid to speak, no longer so afraid to set boundaries, no longer so afraid to fight for what I need. Some of my finest qualities were amplified, my empathy, my passion for justice, my writing, my spirit, my love of family. You also know a more broken me, one continually working on and working through past traumas, those that truly occurred from even before I was conceived until the very present day. You know a Jewish me. I think to how I infantilized myself, how my family infantilized me with their words, how I was othered, how there was an underlying current of she must be Jewish, along with there's something wrong with her that I spent my life unknowingly trying to come to grips with. How was I to know until those exact thoughts left my mother's lips during those emotional disclosures? And now four years later, the puzzle pieces have finally become more manageable. Yesterday, I took time both for self-care and for occupying my mind with some of the traditional and ritual actions I've come to keep this time of year. Today, I have continued and will continue focusing on taking care of myself and my family and memorializing that day in remembrance, storytelling, community, rest, and continued learning of my new priorities. Tonight, I will be recording a new podcast. One week from today should be another of the biggest days of my life. There's no better day for some of these emotional endeavors. Happy rebirth day to me. (sighs) How are you? Oh, you're killing me, girl. This, This is why I started sharing more was... Whenever I would write something, I would get people responding. And like, I had never experienced that to such a degree where I could write something that meant something to me and have all these people say, oh my gosh, what you wrote just helped me put words to what I was feeling. And so I just kept doing it and I'm still doing it four years later and um, probably will be doing it for quite a while. And it helps me. And if I can help even like one person put words to their experience or feel like they're not alone, because as we've, as we've said so many times, this is such an isolating experience and there's so many of us now that there's no reason for people to feel more isolated than they already do. I agree. And I really hope you do keep writing because you have such an amazing way with putting your feelings into words. And that was Thank very moving. We haven't, we haven't even started the interview portion of this and I'm, I'm already crying and sniffling and that was really, truly amazing. And I'm really glad that you shared that with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I need to gather myself. <laughs> so, Sandra, how about if you tell the listeners now a little bit about yourself and where you're from? So, I am 38 years old. I live in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I am, I'm married. I have a young daughter and right now I'm a stay at home mom. And I kind of do this as a job at this point. Um, I write, I moderate groups, um, and I work on projects with various not yet either nonprofit groups or um, donor conception awareness groups um, to try to get things done and make things a little bit better for all of us who are finding out these things via via DNA testing. And um, so it's it's really become 
become a huge part of my life. But yeah, other than that, I love, you know, I love working out. I love healthy eating. I love swimming and music and rock and roll and good ethnic food. (laughs) I love New York City. (laughs) There's so much. There's so much. I think that gets um, people forget, especially when you're in the spotlight sometimes and people kind of paint you as a one dimensional. uh, You're the person who talks about DNA testing all the time. It's like, no, we're a lot more than that. We have families and we're real people. And we, we deal with all the stuff that everybody deals with. And we have our interests and our other hobbies too. That's very true. So can you also tell us about your family of origin and how and when you discovered that you are an NPE? Um, so I grew up in a very traditional family in the in the New Jersey suburbs, um, you know, mom and a dad. And my mom's family is uh, straight from Italy. My grandparents came over from Italy um, when they were expecting my mom. Um, so she was conceived over there, born here in, in America, in Brooklyn. Um, and my, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents are second cousins, from the same small town in Italy, you know, every people had just not left that town for generations. And so um, I was pretty confident in, in that side of my family history. And so that was not something that I thought DNA testing would necessarily get me more information about. Um, although I felt a lot more connected to that side of my family, being recent immigrants, all, all the traditions in our home, all the holiday traditions were really Italian American traditions. Um, my dad is a very much a mixed American, you know, what you think of when you think of American, British and Dutch and German and French and Scottish and, you know, very colonial America. Um, And so while I always was kind of lacking in connection to his culture, family, um, I, once I started doing genealogy, I was kind of fascinated by how far back I could go in his family, you know, how, how far back the, uh, the immigration was. And so, so it be, it became fascinating for me to learn about, about both sides of, of my family. Um, and yeah, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten until eighth grade. Um, not because my family was particularly religious, but I, I did, I ended up, um, being able to go a grade ahead because of the, the Catholic school system there. So, um, and I never really jived with Catholic school. I was very much not not into it. Um, but it, that ended up kind of being a clue down the line. <laughs> um, but yeah, I grew up in a family where there was not really any, there weren't any really big red flags that something was, was wrong. Um, there was there was emotional abuse going on. Um, There was substance abuse going on. Um, My dad had a lot of mental health issues, um, but it was not something that I was really kind of aware of as a young child. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to become more aware of what was going on. um, And really not until adulthood where I started to process how those things had impacted my growing up and re-examined that now in light of, of my DNA discovery. And so at some point, um, you end up taking a DNA test. Was that something that you just did kind of on a whim for fun? Yeah, it was something I had really been interested in for a long time. I remember when they first came out and were very expensive and I couldn't afford it, you know, being right out of college, I couldn't afford it. So I just kind of put it on the back burner and a good friend of mine, uh, approached me and said that 23andMe was doing a research study on uh, depression and bipolar disorder. And if you had uh, a family history, 
you could be eligible for this study. And she knew I was interested in, in family history and genealogy and knew that my dad had mental health issues. Um, and as, as did I, as I, as I grew, struggled with, with depression and anxiety. Um, and so I jumped on it and I, um, applied and I qualified for the research study and I got, ended up actually getting the 23andMe test for free. So it was, it was fantastic all around because I figured I was helping out with genetics research. I was getting my own breakdown that I'd wanted to get for a long time, um, possibly learning more about my health history um, and maybe connecting with, with new relatives that I had lost touch with. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a win. And that was in, in the summer of 2017. And so I got my results on September 26th of 2017. And what happened when you got those results? Oh, I was laying in bed in the middle of the night. I was about to go to sleep. My daughter was sleeping. Um, and I checked my email one last time. And I, and I had the email that my results were in. And when I opened up the email, um, the first thing I saw was this huge chunk. And it was, I just, just rechecked the percentage today because of, of the anniversary. It was 49.3% Ashkenazi Jewish. And that was the largest uh, portion of the circle there. Um, by far the largest portion there. And this was really intriguing at first. At first it was intriguing. It was a little bit of a, okay, this is odd, but let's figure this out. Um, I was thinking back to my, my first thought was perhaps my Italian grandparents had been ethnically Jewish. Uh, my, my grandfather you know, when they immigrated from Italy, they lived in Brooklyn, the Italian and Jewish neighborhoods were together all the time. There was a lot of camaraderie between the, between the communities. And my grandfather always spoke very highly of his Jewish neighbors and would always tell me stories. And I'm thinking maybe he, maybe he really had an affinity and was, was ethnically Jewish. And, but 50% is a lot bigger than, as, as we all know, as we all know, after this experience, if you come out 50% something that you're not expecting, there's a lot more to the story. But I tried for several hours. I really tried to make it make sense within the context of what I knew about my family. I tried to say, maybe if it's a little bit from my Italian side, and maybe this great-grandmother on my dad's side who was German, maybe they were German Jews or something. And, and as the night wore on, I had a couple friends helping me. Um, and it, it just became clearer and clearer that I was 50% Jewish and the other 50% was all consistent with Southern Italy. You know, now they've kind of refined it. Right now I'm like 50-50. You know, it's 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 very clear. But at the time it was like, you know, 20% Italy, 5%, you know, something else, 15% Middle East. But it was all consistent with Southern Italy. And then there was this other half um, that was not anything I recognized. And my friend finally said to me, like in the middle of the night, she goes, Cassandra, she's like, your last name is Adams you know your dad has British ancestry. She says, you have 0% British. Zero. And that's when it hit me like, oh my gosh, something is really wrong. Something is really wrong. here. So half of your pie chart was matching up to everything you knew about your mother's heritage. Yes. But the other half was not matching what you knew of your father's heritage. Nope. Totally different. And so at this point, you must have a lot of bells and whistles going off. I'm, I'm starting to panic. I'm starting to panic. And it's like four o'clock in the morning and I'm not able to sleep. And I, my mom was coming over to watch my daughter 
I had an appointment the next day. Um, and I sent her a message asking if she could come over a little bit earlier. And um, panicked, proceeded to panic for a few hours until I called the 23andMe help hotline as soon as they opened just to ask if there was any chance of a mix-up or anything like that, <laughs> which they assured me, no, they have so many safeguards in place that that was not, not possible. Um, and I, I trusted the estimates from them. I knew they were a reputable company. Um, and I knew this was, this was looking bad and I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what to expect. And I also, um, had matched with a half sibling, um, who was also 50% Jewish. So it went from seeing that I have a half sibling and thinking, oh, maybe my dad had another child out there prior to getting married to, no, I don't think so. Something else is going on here. Oh, and so what happened when your mom came over that day? Um, I sat her down um, and I said, I said to her, I said, mommy, what's, what's going on? And then I just said, he's, he's not my father, is he? And she started to cry. And she said, no, he's not. Um, she didn't lie. Um, a lot of people do, <laughs> even when confronted. Um, she knew I was taking the test. She saw me spit into the tube. I had actually messaged her as soon as I got my results the night before and uh, told her that she should take it also. And uh, she knew, she knew what I, what I was about to find out. So she was already kind of having an opportunity to brace herself for this. Yes. And I said, mommy, what happened? Who who is he? What's going on? What, why didn't you tell me? What, who, who is this person? And she said that my dad could not have children. And so they used a sperm donor to conceive me. And they had no information. Um, she didn't know. And then one of the most kind of horrifying things, which I kind of alluded to in the post that I made this morning, something that has truly stuck with me is she was crying and upset and she's saying through her tears, I, I always thought you were Jewish. And I, to this day, I don't know what she was referring to. I have not had the emotional strength to um, have that conversation with her. Um, and in the moment, it was just like, okay, whatever. But in the long run, that's kind of become one of the most traumatic things about the way my relationship with my mom has, has changed through all this is um, this idea that she, because they had no, they, it wasn't like it is now where you can choose a, a sperm donor or you have information. They literally had nothing. It was just random sperm you got inseminated with. So she had absolutely no idea what ethnic background this person was or anything. So the fact that she looked at me, her own child, for 35 years and was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a Jewish person right there. It just was this bizarre idea. And my daughter was a year and a half at the time. So I was, was also a new mother and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I had this such this close bond with my daughter. You know, you're like one being, um, for, and to look at, at, this child that is, is your flesh and blood and not know what the hell they are and to guess and to guess with such, I don't know, based on 
stereotypes, I'm assuming, because I don't know what other way she would have thought I was Jewish. Um, and that's kind of come back to haunt me a lot as I've explored that element of my identity. Um, and it's, it's nothing that she's ever, you know, apologized for or explained. And, you know, a year or so after that, she was saying there was, there was always something that was wrong with me. I cried a lot as a baby. So there was always something wrong with me. And I was like, okay, I, I, I flat out told her, I was like, get your hundred dollars back. You want to return me? You know? And so that kind of combined with the always thinking that I was Jewish. I'm like, you always thought I was Jewish and you always thought there was something wrong with me. And hence I'm, I'm, it's been a very painful kind of period to look back on a very painful statement. Um, and, and, and additionally, like so many of us deal with the, the medical consequences too, of her not comprehending that. Um, and that was also something within the, I only spoke to her for 15, 20 minutes at the beginning, um, before I, I left and came back to it later, but I tried to ask her anything I could to get any information I possibly could. Um, and she actually did have information that helped me identify who, who the donor was, but, um, not formal, you know, her, her doctor had told her that they only used healthy doctors, you know, healthy medical students, healthy doctors as donors. Um, and this was all that, my mom needed to hear was that they were healthy. Um, and so apparently that meant that there were 35 years of her not worrying at all about what I may have inherited from this man because no, but he was healthy. Like she just kept saying that, but they said he was healthy. They said he was healthy. I was like, well, you know, I'm sure a lot of medical students are very healthy, but I'd like to know this man who's probably now in his 60s or 70s, what conditions I may have inherited from him, because I doubt that uh, that he's still in, in the perfect health, you know, um, it, it just something that had just not crossed her mind at all. Um, and so I'm grilling her in the first 15 minutes about mommy. What about mommy? So mommy, I'm Jewish. What about breast cancer? What about, what about the BRCA gene? What about, you know, I worked in healthcare. So I'm like, I'm like going at her with like, how could you not tell me these things, you know? Um, and it was just a shock. And she also said that, um, aside from her doctor confirming that, he was using the sperm of a healthy doctor or medical student that one of the days he came to inseminate her or that she went to the office to be inseminated, that the doctor told her that he had just driven from Long Island with this sample of, of semen. Um, and my parents were living in Westchester County, which is right outside of New York. Um, so and I've told this story and people, it's always, it's kind of funny to me now because I'm, I'm, I'm past it and I've kind of turned it into this like humorous thing because it has to be, otherwise it's too crazy. But like one of the first images I had of myself post-discovery was in a cup, like in a cup holder, like driving down the Long Island Expressway. I'm just imagining like this, like red solo cup, like buckled in, like, and it's dry and like driving to my mom. And I'm, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in there. Like, what? Like, it's a very weird way to think about yourself when you don't grow up knowing this about yourself. <laughs> in a red solo cup. <laughs> yes. Buckled in, buckled in, you know, can't spill it or anything. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that was, that was my discovery. That was, that was how I found out. And, and it turned out that the half sibling that I matched with when I, when I Googled this person's last name, I found several doctors on Long Island with that last name. And so even though my mom just had this totally random clue that, uh, her doctor had said, 
about uh, the sperm coming from Long Island, I was able to to determine that this half sibling match was most likely the child that my biological father had raised. Um, and I was right. And so I was able to connect. Thankfully, thankfully, my half sibling, you know, answered and I was able to connect with my biological father pretty quickly. And how did that go? It went, it went well, actually. I mean, it took, it took a little while. We emailed for a little, I, you know, I met one of his kids. Um, we kind of, you know, confirmed that we were, we were cool. We noticed we looked a lot alike. And, um, and then I, I was emailing with my bio dad for a while. And then we, we met up, I think about four months after I, after I got my DNA test results. Um, and I, it was a lot to process in a short amount of time to meet him so soon after I got the results. I don't, I don't regret it. Um, I don't, I, th- I think it would have killed me to wait longer. Um, but in a way it was so much to process at once meeting so soon after I was just coming into this new reality. Um, but, but, but thankfully things have gone well. Um, you know, we're still very much in touch and, um, get along well. And I look a lot like him and (laughs) it's crazy. It's, it's crazy for anybody listening who's met biological family that, you know, you've been separated from, um, the, the resemblance is, is insane. And so did he ever wonder if he may be contacted down the road by the child of his donation? I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think they, they really thought that there was going to be no way to trace it. And he's very glad, like there's, there's several of us now. There's, there's four of us as of, as of this taping, um, four from, four from the donations and then the children that he, he raised. Um, so, and that's, that's pretty low for, for, for donor conceived people. Uh, but, um, but he's glad that, that we found him. He's glad that we found him because he, he was a doctor and he, um, knows how important medical history is. And I think he, especially after meeting, um, those of us that he has met has realized even more so, I think he was aware prior as well, but, um, he's even more, I think, adamant now that, you know, you, you pass along stuff to your to your children. When you pass along your sperm or your egg, um, that's, that's goes kind of beyond just, just, uh, cold genetic, genetic material. There's, there's some kind of, um, humanity there, um, certain traits and personality and mannerisms and aptitudes and, um, so much of who we are that's kind of wrapped up in, in those, uh, twists that, um, is fascinating. And he's realized that. So he's very glad that we found him, but no, I don't think he ever anticipated, um, that, that this would happen. His grown children also found out when we started popping up on the DNA sites, you know, that's when they found out that their dad had donated sperm. They hadn't known prior to that. So, um, it was something, I guess, that their parents never really thought to bring up with them, but it's, it's important now, especially because, you know, I was conceived and born in 1982. And at the time, um, they were mostly fresh donations, meaning that the man would get his sample, you know, into a cup or specimen container, um, and it would be used very quickly. You know, it was a fresh sample. It was not cryogenically frozen like they do now. Um, so the sperm samples were not taken very far. I mean, I'm very, I, it's crazy to say, but I'm very fortunate that they drove it over the bridge to Westchester County. And then my parents just happened to, we just happened to move to New Jersey when I was two years old and I grew up here, but so far everybody else has been on Long Island. And I'm pretty sure that most of our siblings would, would be, um, from the Long Island area. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of cases of, donor conceived people who went to school with 
their half siblings and didn't know until until now um, because they were all fresh samples. So someone was donating and the couples using the sperm were all fairly local to where the person was donating. Does it ever make you wonder if any of these half siblings who don't realize that they're half siblings have ended up dating each other? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, apparently it has happened. Um, I don't, you know, sometimes there are posts on, I'm, I'm getting old now, but like Reddit or whatever about things like that. Um, so you don't know how accurate they are if it's somebody just playing it up. But I, I do think that I have heard at least at least one confirmed case where where a couple were had dated at some point. Um, yeah. And that then the, the chances are are higher when and that's that's one of the problems with with sperm even today with sperm donation in the United States is the United States is really the only, you know, major country that doesn't have like any regulations really around sperm donation. So there are no, the American society of reproductive medicine has guidelines of how many, um, times a single person's sperm or, or egg. I mean, it's not as, as bad with eggs because there don't, te- there don't tend to be as many children born from egg, born from one person's egg donations. Um, but for sperm, especially, um, you know, they don't want any more than a certain number per population unit, but it's only guidelines. There's nothing in place and clinics don't often keep records of how many children are born. Like parents have to, um, register like a live birth with the clinic. So if parents don't register that they had a live birth with donor number X, Y, Z, the clinic doesn't know. So they're still selling the samples as if there's no children and there might already be five children or there might already be 10 children. I mean, I know I, one of my, one of the things that I do is I moderate a very large group. It's like almost 15,000 people now um, for the donor conception triad. So it's, it's donor conceived adults, um, parents who are, who have used donors and the donors themselves. And Um, I know many people, uh, on, on our, our page who have young children now who have, you know, 200 siblings for their kids that they've, you know, well, they haven't found them all, but, you know, um, the clinics are not really being vigilant about how many, and and I can tell you, it might sound cool and exciting to have 200 siblings, but it's not. I only have a few and um, it's already difficult to plan like a meetup or to get to know them, especially when you're all in your thirties and you're just meeting for the first time. And it's like, it's very hard to make, as, as anybody knows, it's very hard to make up for lost time. And then when you add the sheer like numbers into it, and then you just feel like a, like a product assembly line, you know, if there's that many of you. It's just, it's, it's very dehumanizing. Um, so no, it's not pleasant to be one of a, a huge number of siblings. And, and for people in my generation where there weren't really records kept, I mean, from, from what my mom says, she was not given any paperwork, you know, there was no donor number. Um, so there were no records. So there's, there's nowhere I can go to ever ascertain how many siblings I have. The only way I'll ever find out is through DNA testing. The only, that's the only way I would ever find out is if they DNA test or if one of their children DNA tests eventually. And, and I find them that way. So they didn't even give your mother any medical history or any mental health history at all. Nothing. And I, I asked my biological father if they asked him any health questions and he laughed and said, no. Wow. It was base. it was basically like a free for all. Like we just need sperm. That's going to work. Um, it's going to be from a doctor. So we can tell them that they're like, you know, high quality, like smart, whatever, <laughs> whatever they are. Um, and it'll get a woman pregnant and they'll be happy. <laughs> it's like, Yay. I love babies. I wish everybody who wanted a baby could have a baby. 
but it's very difficult. It's very, it's a very difficult life. <laughs> um, yeah, it's complicated. How many total half siblings did you say that you have now? Uh, there's four of us that are from, from the donations. Okay. And then how many siblings do you have that he, that your birth father raised? Uh, three. That's a lot of sudden siblings. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's crazy because everybody has a different level of interest. So you're, you're learning about these people and yet your family and you look so much like them and you look more like them than family that you were raised with. And it's so strange. And then you find, you find coincidences too of, you know, like my, my biological father, like his family owned a vacation house, like 15 minutes from where I grew up, which is like so strange to think that we could have run into each other or, you know, or, um, you know, one of my siblings knows somebody that, that is in my family, like from somewhere else. Like, it's just, it's very, it's very strange. And you just, when you know there's others out there and you don't know how to find them, it's just, and, and when you speak of having these like little breakdowns as time goes by, like, like four years, okay, like my third rebirth day and then today were okay. You know, there were a lot of feelings there, but I was okay. I was able to kind of have a little bit of a celebratory aspect to it. You know, that kind of like vindication of being, being free, being knowledgeable, having the pieces to put together of my own life. Um, but you still get those waves of like grief every so often and and that that's something that happens to a lot of us is wondering like where are these other siblings and will I ever find them and checking the DNA sites or you have a dream that a new sibling shows up and you wake up and you check the DNA sites just to make sure um because then you're going to have to walk somebody through this whole process again. And it's so, it's so raw. It's so raw. Um, it's a, it's a new life. It's a new, a new way to live your life. And have you um, met in person yet? Any of your half siblings, either the ones that your bio father raised or the donor siblings? Yeah. Yeah. I've met several of them and they're great. And we try to try to do like a, a meetup once a year, but even, even with several of us, it's hard to kind of get everybody together. So it's been pretty crazy. Nothing, nothing about this journey has been like smooth. There's always like a, a bump somewhere that causes you to feel sad or angry. Um, you know, whether it has to do with the family you were raised with or whether it has to do with the, the new family or what, or even if it's, if it's something in your community, you know, like, um, in the donor conception community, there's a very tight knit group of people there too. And if there's ever, you know, disagreement about something about how to approach an issue or how to approach a legislator or, you know, it's, it hurts because I think we're so afraid at this point of like rejection or loss because there's been so much grief. Like anytime anybody gets upset with someone else, I just want to make it all better. I just want to tell people to get along, you know, and it's like, that's our wish. That's our wishes for everybody to get along because we're so tired of like conflict we're so tired of discord in our families. Now, what's your relationship like now with your mom and your birth certificate father? Oh, it's very hard right now. We have not have not spoken in quite a while. Um, my 
after my mom told me that there was always, my mom was very supportive for about like the first year, I want to say. And then I think it became too much for her to um, understand that this was going to like last more than a year, (laughs) that I was going to talk about this for more than a year, you know, that I was still going to be searching for answers or still be struggling. Um, And so then, and, and plus my, my birth certificate father has, has a lot of mental health issues and um, he, he has some narcissistic qualities as I've learned. And I think he, and my mom depend, there's, there's a definitely like a codependent relationship there. Um, And these are all things that I kind of knew um, as a young adult, but it's like you re-examine them in light of all this and you realize like, this secret was actually something that kept them like codependent on each other as well. And it actually like the amount of toxicity that this secret kind of caused within the household was crazy. And um, I think my dad abused substances prior to this as well, but I'm sure this didn't help. Um, And so I think my mom could not take it. And my dad kind of dragged her back into the whole like, no, she needs to get over this. This is, you know, and, and I wasn't going to get over it um, that easily. And in fact, I had already gotten over some of it. It was a year, a year into it. So I had gotten over a lot, but I was just starting advocacy and I was dealing with other life things and um, they couldn't really appreciate what, what, what I was going through. Um, So after my mom told me, um, uh, that there had always been something wrong with me, um, that I, I have not really directly spoken to her much, uh, since then. Um, and I've tried to make it clear, um, publicly when I speak about this issue, um, that it's more than just a quick, we didn't mean to hurt you because that's, that was all I got for for a while after that. Um, and it's about, it's like the, did we just had Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition. And one of the main components of that is teshuva. And teshuva is like making it right. You know, accountability. You don't just say you're sorry, you fix it. And I'm kind of, after so much therapy that I've gone through, I've been through like trauma um, treatment programs, like hospital outpatient programs, because I had very severe PTSD and CPTSD after this. Um, After all the work I went through um, while being a mother, while working on issues in my own personal life, um, I put so much work in and I just want to see some of that reciprocated by my family of origin. And, and they haven't yet. And especially from my mom, my mom and I were very close and it's very hard to see that kind of staying in denial is more important than having a relationship with your daughter and your granddaughter. And that's kind of what I've realized throughout all of this. And that, that may be, aside from the lie and the betrayal, which I know some, some parents truthfully didn't know, but with my parents, they knew, they knew. So there was, it was an intentional secret. So aside from the intentionality of the secret, the betrayal of not telling, which I understand. I mean, I I do, I have a lot of empathy for um, what went on decades ago. I've learned so much about donor conception. It's like, I know what, what they were told at the time. I know they were not encouraged to tell, you know, they weren't explicitly told to not tell me, but they were not told to tell me either. Um, so I understand that. And I've, I've, I've built up so much empathy for them. Um, but it's still to that little girl in me who's looking to mommy and daddy, like it's still, it's still betrayal. And I, I, I can't, rebuild that trust and and the only the only thing that rivals that that betrayal of not being told the truth about myself is the idea that 
after everything that happened, after all the talk of a child is your child forever, you know, my mom would always say, because my dad was not the nicest person sometimes, that you can always get a new man, you can always have a different husband, but you, your, ch your child is your child forever. You can't break that bond. It was very, very much Italian mother thing, you know. After all that talk, it was all a lie. She put him first. She put his ego above me until now because she still won't fully recognize not not just the consequences of the lie, but the consequences of everything that happened afterwards, which was pretty, um, pretty um, severe at times, unfortunately. You know, as children, we are totally reliant on the information that's given to us by our parents. Our security, our identity, our self-confidence, our self-worth. That's all reliant on the people who play that parental role in our lives. And we trust everything that's given to us by our parent or parents. And so finding out that we have a different father is tantamount to completely erasing that trust and completely erasing our identity and the security that we've built around a life that we thought that we had but then later found out was a lie, which as you and I both know, ends up having very traumatic emotional consequences. Absolutely, absolutely. It knocks the base out from under you and you have no basis on which to build trust in people anymore. If, the, if your first attachment figures do this to you, it just screws around with everything. And it's very, very hard to come to terms with taking someone kind of off of a pedestal that you had them on. And, and, not, and not that they're faultless. I never thought my parents were faultless. <laughs> but not in this way. Not in this way. I never thought my mother would say the things that she said to me. And then play it like, why isn't my adult daughter talking to me? You know, that I have to just forgive, that it's it's my role, job to just forgive when without any any work put in in the other way. It's it's painted very differently, especially when I hear from from other family members about how it's how the situation's been painted. It's not painted accurately. You know, it's not painted as what actually happened. Um, it's just like, I wanted a child and, and I love her so much and she's just mad at me. <laughs> it's like, well, you said a lot of things in between that. Um, and I just want you to, I want to, I want to feel safe in these relationships. You know, I'm, I'm. Hopefully next week going to be officially, officially Jewish. Um, I don't want to um, have to hide that part of myself. I don't want to have to hide um, talking about siblings. I honestly, you know, even, even, even it's not even necessarily about other extended family members. It's, it's mostly like, this is what I do now. This is, what I talk about, like people don't have to hide their jobs or from, from their family members or never, I want to be able to talk about it. I want to be able to say, oh, there was this frustrating person online or, or I gave this, this speech the other day, or I did this podcast and I want, want my family to be proud of me for that. And I, I think my mom is to some extent, I just don't think she's strong enough to, um, fully express that. And I want her to, I want her to express how, um, how strong this has, has made me. I think sometimes they think of this as just one 
event that happened in our lives that we're supposed to just um, move on from, I don't think that they look at it as a journey for us. And that's really, that's really what it is. It's a journey. And it's a journey that goes through the rest of our lives. It It keeps evolving. It does keep evolving. You went, I think you said 35 years, right? Yeah. Thinking you had a completely different identity. Yes. I went 39 years thinking I had a completely different identity. I just, I just don't think that they realize that this is something that affects our lives for the rest of our lives. It's completely life-changing. It is. It is. My, my grandparents were like the biggest thing to me. My, my mother's parents and my father's parents were very important to me too, but they passed away when I was a little bit younger. But one of my biggest griefs that I've had to deal with is not ever meeting my biological paternal grandparent, you know, and, and I don't know whether they would have cared to meet me if they knew about me. They might have thought it was really weird, <laughs> but, but this idea that I will never know them and I'll never get to know who they are. It's very, it's very unsettling. And, and I feel like a fraud. You feel like a fraud to everybody, really. That's what it is. Like four years later and I'm okay. I could, I could do some celebratory things to, 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 to mark this occasion. But thinking about what's still hard for me is it's still, you know, I still look in the mirror and I'm still adjusting to who I look like. I'm still adjusting to placing my face as, you know, this is from this person, this is from that person. And I still don't know what my biological paternal grandmother looked like. I don't have a a good picture of her. So I'm still placing my face. You know, I'm still getting used to that. For a while, I could only see my biological father. And then I could start to see my mom again. And, and then you think you're, are you crazy for having thought that maybe you looked like your, your birth certificate father? You know, it's just, it's, it's wild. And and that's something that I'm still dealing with. And I'm still dealing with that kind of in the context of, of, of Judaism as well, too, because I've gotten more involved in, in the Jewish community. And, and when I think about things like what my mom said, or, or, you know, now when I hear it from someone else that, oh, you look Jewish or you're Jewish mannerisms or whatever, you know, one person said to me, you have a Yiddish accent. I'm like, really? Okay. You know, like when I hear things like that now, it feels validating. You know, it feels like people can, can get that sense from me. Um, but it, it's a weird, it, it's still a weird thing that I, that I think about when I look in the mirror or when I hear myself speak or something like what are people noticing about me that that makes me come across that way because I don't have that history with the Jewish community with knowing kind of what you know even though I grew up right outside of New York I have a lot of Jewish friends I'm very familiar with with the culture as an outsider but being an insider and kind of realizing these things that people pick up on, it's just, it's a new way of, of looking at myself and it's something I'm still kind of getting used to. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very, it's very hard. It's very, and you still pick up on it in, in, in TV and movies. And every time there's a story around it, you're, you're not sure whether you're going to be able to laugh it off or whether you're going to have a sick feeling for a couple days after, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very personal journey and it literally affects, affects you in some way every day. I feel like it's very bittersweet, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I feel so happy at this point with where my life has gone. And so much of that is due to this discovery, but yet I still would not wish this on, this experience on anyone. 
as it's it's unfortunately the way my life turned out and so I kind of have to make the best out of it and feel vindicated in what I can feel vindicated in but I would not wish this this experience on anyone finding out late like this especially no this is definitely not a club that any of us wanted to be in for sure (laughs) no (laughs) I am really impressed at your resilience and what you've done with this journey, where you've gone with this journey and the positives that you've taken out of it and how you're helping other people through their experience. Thank you. And you too, because we need people to share these stories and to normalize these feelings a little bit for each other and for our family members and friends, because we all know the things that people say to us uh, after something like this happens and people just need to be educated um, about this, that it's real, that it's a real traumatic incident and that our feelings are real and that they, it takes time to work through it. We can be years into it and still be triggered. We can be years into it and not appreciate someone, um, laughing it off or making fun or making light of the situation. You know, it's different if we do it ourselves, but it's, it's, it's a, quite another thing if, if it's someone on the outside who's um, making light of your situation. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. And it takes a lot of bravery to tell our stories. It's not easy to tell these stories. Um, it's draining. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. It um, reopens wounds. It really does. But those of us that tell our stories over and over, we do that to help other people feel empowered to be able to live in their truth and tell their story and not be silenced. I think that there will be a lot of listeners that will really appreciate how you tell your story. And I, and I think that they'll feel a connection to you. Thank you. I really, I really find it so important to tell. And I, I kept, I kept private for, for about that year after I found out in order to kind of protect some people. And at this point it becomes, I'm not outing anyone by name. Um, and I keep, you know, family members stories private and they're, um, names and identities um, but for me um, talking about the family that I've met and talking about the journey is is way too important I can't I can't I spent so much of my life being the quiet one um, being the one who would uh, let other people speak over me or not uh, say my peace try to keep peace And every time I kind of spoke up for myself, I feel like it was almost like I was shamed for it. And I don't, I don't want to be that quiet person. I want to be able to be who I am for once. Good for you. And you should be. I like who you are. I think you're wonderful. So if there are other NPEs or late discovery donor conceived listeners um, who would like to reach out to you. Is there a way that they can do that? Absolutely. Uh, My email address is CassandraJAdams at yahoo.com. Anybody can feel free to to, uh, email me. I'm also on on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at at CassandraJAdams. I'm open to any uh, messages, uh, even if it takes me a while, I definitely appreciate hearing from people and meeting new people and shoot me a friend request, especially if you've had, um, you know, a discovery about being donor conceived or, um, you know, a change in your ethnicity or racial identity as a result of this. Um, or even if you're a parent who used a donor and you're wondering how to tell your children, anything like that. I work with parents a lot too. Um, 
or if you're considering donating your sperm or eggs, if you'd like more information about what it's like for us, anything, um, I'm always willing uh, to talk or to refer you to somebody who might know, know about that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Thank you for that. And Cassandra, thank you so, so much yeah. for sharing your story and your perspective on what somebody goes through when they find out late in life that they are donor conceived. I really appreciate your bravery in doing this and the time that you took to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell your kids, no secrets. (laughs) Don't lie to your kids. Absolutely. I could not agree more with that. Be truthful with your kids. It's the best thing that you could possibly do. Thank you for being here, Cassandra. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's such a pleasure. And now to my listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode today. As always, I leave you with an important message. If you are a parent who has not been forthcoming with your child about their true parentage, I urge you to share the truth with them. Withholding this information for any reason will negatively affect your relationship and your child's mental health down the road. If you're not sure the best way to reveal the truth, there are qualified therapists that can help you communicate with your child in a healthy way. Our lives are enriched by having parents who are honest with us. Honesty saves a great deal of pain in the future, and it fosters an environment of trust and genuine intimacy between parents and children. Discovering a non-paternal event later in life is very traumatic. We have a right to know where we come from and to know our true ancestry and our mental and physical health history. And while sometimes it's said that the truth can be a double-edged sword, it's far more harmful and damaging to withhold it from the people we love. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, please email thesecretinmydna at gmail.com. Your story could end up being a survival guide for another NPE who may be struggling or feel alone in their discovery. You do not have to give identifying information, and if you prefer to share your story anonymously, names can be changed or abbreviated for privacy purposes. To hear more amazing DNA discovery stories, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at anchor.fm slash thesecretinmydna. The Secret in My DNA also has a Facebook page where our NPEs can share photos and updates of their journey, so please go give it a like and a follow. I'm your host, Michelle Perret, signing off till next time.